Gracious God, you are the creator of all things. You are the redeemer of all things. You are the sustainer of all things. All things hold together in and through you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you may walk among us fresh as Eden. You may open our eyes and our hearts to see you more clearly in our lives, in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to have some slides. I can't see the slides. I'm going to have some slides. Can we go to the first slide? There we go. And then I'm going to say next slide. Not yet, but many times. Wait, no, ah, ah, yep. So today's our first Sunday in our sermon series, Hot Topics. Today we begin with the topic of evolution and Christianity, which may be hot for some and may not be hot. Uh, it may be irrelevant for some and it may be super relevant to others. But I'd like to start today with by saying what we're not going to be saying or doing. First, I'm not going to be making an argument for the theory of evolution. I'm going to assume that the scientific consensus around evolution is true. It's not my area of expertise by far anyway. Uh, I uh, almost failed biology in grade 12. And uh, you know, I have an English degree and a theology degree. But there are plenty of other places to go for that information, your public library, Wikipedia, and uh, I'll send some resources in the next email as well. Next slide. I realize that for many Christians, including some of us here today, possibly, that this could be a controversial statement that I just made. However, the truth is that the largest Christian denominations throughout the world see no inherent conflict between evolution and Christianity. For example, and my great slide, you know, just putting the slides together, also one of my skills, obviously, I have an English degree. <laughs> I realize that for many, anyway. Um, okay, for example, Narnia author and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis, Pope's John Paul II, Benedict XV, and the present Pope Francis. And perhaps most surprisingly, the late Billy Graham, probably the most influential Christian evangelist of the 20th century. Francis Collins, the scientist who led the effort to map the human genome, is an evangelical Christian. And throw in the fact that Charles Darwin, the father of evolutionary theory, is buried in Westminster Abbey, one of the world's most notable cathedrals. Throw that all together and it's safe to say that evolution and Christianity are not incompatible within the, uh, in the eyes of most Christian authorities, meaning the conflict between the two has been seriously exaggerated on both sides. Okay, with the hottest stuff out of the way, I'd like to offer a simple way for us, as people of faith, to think about Christianity and evolution, and to talk about it with our children and our friends and with those who don't share our convictions. Next slide.
To begin the conversation, the most helpful metaphor I found for talking about it is what the medieval Christians called the difference between the book of nature and the book of scripture. Medieval Christians saw both of these two things as sources for the knowledge of God, as two distinct ways that God discloses herself to us. Pope John Paul II once said this. He said, research performed in a truly scientific manner can never be in contrast with faith because both profane and religious realities have their origin in the same God. They're not the same. They have the same source, but they do overlap. They have points of contact because they both go back to the original source. Next slide. The book of nature is the created universe. It's the world we can see with our eyes, touch, taste, and smell. It's a book in the sense that we can read it. We can learn from it. If Christians believe that the universe is the creation of a loving, intelligent creator, then the world should be put together lovingly and intelligently. We humans have the unique capacity to examine and understand the makeup of the world by stepping back from ourselves as part of the natural order and by looking at the bigger picture of things. And because human beings have this gift, the text of this book is universal. It's open to all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, whether it's how the universe began with the Big Bang, how plants processed sunlight into energy, or how a single-celled organism grew in complexity and variety until human beings eventually emerged. So science is a way that we can read this book for a deeper understanding of how the world we can see and touch and experience works. It's all about how. Is that somebody's brakes outside or what? Also a product of science and God, uh, the bus and its brakes. Next slide. The second book, the book of scripture though, works differently than the book of nature. Whereas the book of nature teaches us how to understand the world we can observe, the book of scripture teaches us about what we can't See, the ancient Nicene Creed talks about God as the maker of all things seen and unseen. And the book of scripture gets at that unseen part. It brings us into contact with the invisible, mysterious reality of God that has been disclosed to followers of Jesus throughout the ages. Unlike the book of nature, the book of scripture can't be read as a science textbook, nor was it intended to be. The book of nature offers us a glimpse of the how things are the way they are. But the book of scripture discloses to us questions that the other simply can't answer by observation. Questions like who and why and for what purpose. These are the questions at the heart of scripture. They aren't something we can see, touch, or taste, at least not face to face. The great Protestant reformer John Calvin once said that the heavens sing to the glory of God, that the natural observable world was the theater of God's glory, that God is active in creation in the world, but we need scripture, and I would add the great tradition, guided by the Holy Spirit, that acts as spectacles, you know, you know, spectacles, that enable us to see God clearly. 
The holy is invisible to the naked eye and the electro microscope. So like 3D glasses that allow us to spot the work of the divine in the world, the book of scripture brings that unseen reality into focus. Okay. So the two books, the book of nature, the reality that we can see, and the book of scripture that brings into focus the things we can't see. They're two different things, but they complement and illuminate each other. Now, often when we talk about human origins, we'll say something like, people came from monkeys. But according to the book of nature, according to evolutionary theory, the stuff that makes humans possible begins way back further, even before the earth came into being. New slide. Next slide. There we go. Like I said, I'm not a scientist. For about 500 million years after the Big Bang brought the universe into explosive existence, there was a period of cooling when stars began to form thanks to the pull of gravity. As they grew in size, they began to heat up inside, creating nature's version of nuclear reactors. And eventually, as these stars grew old, they collapsed into themselves, creating so much heat that they became supernovas, releasing more energy than all the other stars in the universe combined. And as they did, they scattered the whole universe with oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, which, if you know your biology, I mean, I failed it. Uh, and I read this in a book before the sermon. So, if you know your biology, you'll know that these are the building blocks of human life, what our bodies are mostly made of. Basically, the only chemical difference between us and any other living being is how these elements are arranged within us. But it all began with the collapse, with the death of stars. So according to the book of nature, we not only come, came from monkeys, but our origins are even more ancient. We not only came from monkeys, we came from the scattering of celestial ash all over the cosmos. We humans got our start in stardust. You know, there you go, yeah. You know, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, the man from space? No, of course not. Now, at first, this all sounds pretty different from what we read in the other book, the book of Scripture. Let's have the next slide. But if you listen to this portion of the book of Genesis, you'll hear echoes, you'll see connections from the book of nature. Just listen. The Lord God... It says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God, it says, formed the human being from the dust and breathed to bring life. Now, obviously, the timeline here isn't quite the same, but in our scripture passage, God forms the human being out of the dust, out of dust, dirt, the inert matter of creation. Out of this, God forms, God shapes, God molds the human being into existence. 
And you know, the word human actually comes from hummus. That's what Adam's humus, sorry. Hummus, humus, that's two different things. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> hummus, humus, humus, okay. And that's what Adam, you know, I've always read it. I've never actually said it aloud. That's what Adam's name means in the Bible, too. Adam is dirt, earth. It's the earthling, the dirt person. And that's the overlap. It's the connection between the two. I mean, people are sometimes offended at the idea that we came from monkeys. But if you read both the book of nature and the book of scripture, you'll hear that we come from something even lower than monkeys. Dirt. You know, when we say we feel like dirt, that's like the worst thing to you can possibly be. But we're creatures formed out of dust. It doesn't get any more elemental than that. Now, the major difference between the two, though, is that the book of nature only tells us the how. Outside science, the, the other questions aren't actually within the realm of science. If you were to ask many evolutionary scientists, though, our best scholars of the book of nature, they'll tell you that this process is all there is. That the human being is simply a product of this natural process. No more, no less. Which, to be fair, I mean, if you read the science, well, maybe not the original sources, but if somebody engaging tells you the science, it's pretty amazing, wonderful, fantastic, miraculous to begin with, but it's only part of the story. Let's have the next slide. The book of nature tells us how we came into being through billions of years of evolution, but when we look at it through the lens of the book of scripture, we get an answer not just to how, but as to who and why. According to the book of scripture, the answer to the who question isn't a cold, purposeless, or impersonal universe, but one teeming with spiritual meaning. The book of scripture says that God breathed life into the human's nostrils. I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about. How do you do that? And man, it says, became a living being. It's talking about God's spirit, God's breath, the energy, the engine, the fuel, the animating force of all reality. That God is the architect of evolution, the artist of the cosmos, taking nothing but the very basic elements of life. The nothingness of dirt and dust and over billions of years shaping it into our very human bodies here and now filling us with consciousness, filling us with life. You see, according to Scripture, the story of Scripture, the book of Scripture, the Christian story, the reality that creates, sustains, and upholds all things is a benevolent creator whose very nature is self-giving love. A love that is most revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A love so deep that it gives itself up to death for the love of dust. I mean, Glenn, uh, oh no, what was Glenn's last name? Glenn, he was, a, he was a retired minister. Glenn. Glenn. Jackson, there you go. Glenn Jackson said to me that his version of the good news is that you're a speck of dust, on a speck of dust, but the creator of the universe would die for you. 
that we're dust, but there's a love so deep that it gives itself up to death for the love of dust. Early in the chapter, it says that God created humankind in God's image, which leads us to the why question as well. We were created by ancient love, out of love, and for the purpose of love, to love our creator with every fiber of our being, and to love each other as fellow divine sculptures fashioned out of holy stardust. Like the Apostle Paul says, love is patient. Like you think you have patience with your parents, your friends, your kids, the people you love. Think that, but in billions of years of steady patience. Think of that and you'll begin to understand the God's glorious love, God's mercy for every inch of us and the whole of creation. Created by love, for love, patient love, love that endures all things. And that's about all I got to say about evolution and Christianity. That's our first hot topic. While some may see them as incompatible, the largest Christian traditions and authorities have come to embrace them. Because the two are not only compatible, they give us a richer vision of human life and the scope of God's glory. God's even bigger than we thought God was. May you leave this place and step out into the book of nature, being caught up in the age scope and wonder of God's created universe. But also, may you put on the lens of scripture and see that undergirding this wondrous mystery is the love that created us for love. Because all things bright and beautiful all creatures great and small, all things wild and wonderful. It might have taken billions of years, but in love, the Lord God made them all. Amen.